I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. As we've had quite a few special programmes on a single theme of late, it's been a while since we looked at some of the main religious news headlines. So going back to Sunday, October the 21st, designated Mission Sunday by the Catholic Church, Pope Benedict added seven new names to the canon of saints, including the first ever Native American woman saint, Kateri Tekakwitha, commonly known as Lily of the Mohawks. The Irish Association of Catholic Priests expressed disappointment that the bishops declined to meet them. Egypt's Coptic Christians reduced to five the number of candidates for Pope of Alexandria and Patriarch of All Africa in the Holy See of St. Mark the Apostle. And in the storm-battered US, the battle for the presidency continued between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. And to discuss that, we're joined in studio by Kerry Weber, Associate Editor of the National Catholic Magazine America. Kerry, you're welcome to Ireland and to the Godslot. Thank you for having me. Now, as we get closer to this election, it's extremely tight. But these two men are men with religious stories. Well, in the last election, obviously, uh, Barack Obama's religion came up as he was accused of being a Muslim, as though that were even something to be accused of. But in this election, that hasn't really come up. People take him at his word that he practices the Christian faith that he says he believes. Uh, in this election, we're also dealing with Mitt Romney, who is a Mormon. Now, this played a bigger factor in the primary elections uh, when his faith was uh, seemed problematic for evangelical Christians, many of whom don't believe that Mormons are, in fact, Christians at all. Uh, in terms of the general population, I think now that he's the nominee for the Republican Party, it's less of an issue. Um, In the primaries, uh, evangelicals favored Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum, uh, whereas all along Catholics, about 50% of them voted for Mitt Romney. So his religion, thus, at this point, is much less of an issue than some of the social issues that are, you know, prominent in the country today. The Mormon Church and the Catholic Church are on the same page, basically, when it comes to issues like gay marriage and abortion. And so Catholics don't have a problem in general, or at least the Catholic bishops don't have a problem backing a a Mormon candidate. Um, Most Americans, I think, are worried about the economy, about deficit, the deficit, about jobs. Abortion came up briefly during the vice presidential debate. Vice President Biden stated that while he does not personally believe in abortion, he does not believe that the the government should be able to tell a woman what to do with her body. This is not the Catholic Church's position on abortion, obviously, but it is an increasing number of Catholic faithful's position on abortion. When they are unsettled by the number of abortions in the country, they're also unsettled by the idea of criminalizing it. As far as Paul Ryan goes, he stated that abortion should not take place except in cases of rape, incest, or if the life of the mother is in danger. But what isn't brought up as much, but and which was brought up in a recent New York Times op-ed, was that this is not the Catholic Church's position either, that the Catholic Church says that there should not be abortion, uh, it should just not be legal. A lot of people are saying that there is no Catholic vote anymore. Catholics cannot be counted on to vote in a unified bloc for a specific party any longer. Um, and part of this is Catholics have become part of mainstream America, and they act like mainstream America. And this means there's a variety of views among them. The other interesting thing is that it's also when you become part of mainstream America, it's harder to be countercultural. And that's what Catholics are called to do. 
uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, which way it goes. In the last five presidential elections, the majority of Catholics have voted for the presidential candidate who has ended up winning the popular vote. <clears throat> and what about the bishops? Uh, the U.S. bishops, I think, have played um, seemingly an sort of an unprecedented role in this election in terms of how vocal they've been, particularly about the issues of same-sex marriage and about abortion. But each year, or each election year, the U.S. bishops issue a document on faithful citizenship. And in that document, they offer guidelines for U.S. Catholics as to how to vote. Now, they can't endorse a specific candidate, uh, and they, they can't tell, you know, they can't say you must vote this way on election day. But the document itself is quite interesting and uh, quite nuanced. And one of the things that it states is that a Catholic cannot vote for a candidate who would back a position that would back an intrinsic evil if the Catholic is voting for that candidate because of that issue. However, uh, a voter could vote for a, a candidate who backs one of these uh, issues if you're not voting because of that reason and if because you have another grave moral concern in mind that you hope that this candidate can help to rectify. What about women? They just had an article in the New York Times recently uh, w about what they called uh, waitress moms. And this was basically working class mothers who were concerned about issues like getting sufficient health care and having access to birth control, but also concerned about the deficit and, and things like that. So they're conflicted as to who to vote for. The Catholic Church has also uh, taken a strong stance against the part of the Affordable Health Care Act, commonly known as Obamacare, which was originally sort of a term of derision, but which Obama has now embraced, making sure that there is an exemption for religious institutions so that religious hospitals and colleges do not have to provide um, birth control or contraception or um, sterilization services to their employees. There has since been a, a kind of exemption for them in that, not a full exemption, but that the insurers would pay for these healthcare services. However, this provides another problem uh, for some of the larger Catholic institutions, which are self-insured. So if you're saying the insurer is paying for it, it's still the organization. It's sort of termed on one side as a religious freedom issue and on the other side as a war on women. Moving away from religion, what impact do you think the storm will have on the election in the sense that we've been seeing these pictures of President Obama being presidential for the last week, but he hasn't been campaigning, while Mitt Romney, though he postponed for a day or two, then went back on the stump? I think on some level it might help uh, raise Obama's image as a leader if people see him out taking care uh, of the issues that are emergencies and are right at hand. Um, and I know Mitt Romney's uh, stance on FEMA has also been criticized. Um, FEMA is? FEMA is an, an agency that would deal with these emergency issues. And therefore, the idea that he might want to cut some of that budget would be something that might come up. Carrie Weber, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is All Souls Day and yesterday was All Saints Day and we combine these themes now with a look back to a documentary on sainthood from 2003 called Saints Alive and the death during the summer of the well-known Catholic activist Mina Bani Kribin. I'm joined now by producer Jerry McCardle. Tell us the connection, Jerry. Well, I met Mina in 2003 in the course of making that documentary that you were talking about and uh, I met her at her home in Santry where she'd been the postmistress for, for many years. Now, 
it's very fashionable to dismiss her as a religious fanatic. And certainly she did have strong views, and I'd probably disagree with quite a lot of them. She was involved in 2009, for example, in a very controversial case in Roscommon, which I don't want to go into too much because it's being talked about a lot in this referendum. But it did concern an incest case where a woman she helped obtain a high court injunction preventing her children being taken into care was later found guilty of incest, sexual assault and neglect of her six children. But all that being said, I I can only form an opinion of people as I find them. And I found her to be charming, courteous. She made me very welcome. But the interesting thing was that her interview took place in a room off her house, which was her own private oratory. And there she had an altar, and it was fully set out for the old Tridentine uh, Rite Latin Mass. And priests who still knew how to offer that Mass in this way, they'd come there to do just that for her and anybody else who might be interested in attending. Now, she didn't reject the vernacular Mass. She just believed that we'd got it wrong, and that Irish was the vernacular in this country, and that's the language the Mass should have been celebrated in. Because she was passionate about the Irish language. She was passionate about choral music. She trained several choirs. And while it was okay, though, to have girls in choirs, completely, completely against the idea of uh, altar girls, and she thought that that was just another step on the slippery slope to the end of Catholicism. But she was very well known in Santry for helping people with literacy problems, fill out official forms, all that sort of thing. She was held in very high regard in her community. Anyway, the idea of talking to her was that spaced throughout this documentary, I had four well-known people of different backgrounds and religious views talking about their favourite saint. We had David Norris, we had the late, great Liam Clancy, we had TV presenter Jerry May, and lastly, Mina Bani Krabin. So here she is. My favourite saint is Saint Philomena, basically because I'm called after her, but also because she was the first saint I ever heard about. Being called after her, my mother told me all about her, and all about how she was a miracle worker. Mammy had the word Taumaturga, which is still, she's still called, it means wonder worker. And she was the wonder worker of our household whenever you wanted anything. You asked her, basically, you mostly got it. Mammy would have been born 1890, but St. Philomena's relics were discovered in 1802. And from that, between the discovery and then bringing them to Mognano, there was a bit of time elapsed and then on the 10th of August, which is her feast day, the relics were transferred where she wanted them in Mognano. She was, uh, her parents were converts to Catholicism and then she was born and grew up a very holy child and then the Emperor Diocletian wanted her because she was very pretty and the, he was waging war and Philomena's father wanted her to surrender and marry the emperor because it would have saved the country and everything and she said no I promised promised to be a nun I promised a state of chastity all my life and I'm not doing that and she had to, to give up the whole notion of saving her parents but that's what she did and Diocletian then when he found he couldn't marry her he murdered her Mina Bani Cribbin You can hear the documentary Saints Alive in the documentary on one section on the RTE website and we'll put the link up on our website, the Godslot website. Finally this week, Koshchina, run by the SMA Fathers, is a multicultural organisation that respects and promotes the integration of people from all communities, cultures and faiths. It works primarily with asylum seekers and refugees, particularly those of African origin. We have a report on this Cork-based organisation organization now from Leanne O'Donnell. In the beginning I was really scared. 
about how I'm going to survive here, how I'm going to find myself. And I was struggling a lot with the language and, and the culture and everything. But going through that, I learned a lot. And it's been good achievement, really good achievement in my life. So, And I'm so happy to be here. Yasser Yunus came to Ireland six years ago from Darfur. He's a drummer, amongst other things, and he runs a drumming circle at Kushtina Drop-In Centre. Drumming is, it, it's kind of, for me, it's, it's a spiritual way, you know, and it's uh, kind of like uh, a healing, you know. It's, it's, it's another language, it's a universal language that everybody can drum with you. You cannot speak the same language, but you can play the same rhythm or you go through the rhythm. And uh, drumming is, 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 is it's really giving me the confidence. drum I shut my mind down my, my mind down that's that's the moment that's the 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 real secret about it the time when you stop thinking because a lot of people are thinking all the time so the time you think you're out of the beat of the reason you can't play it anymore so that's the secret about the meditation you have to shut your mind you shut your mind and stop your mind from thinking and just play that reason and share it Father Angelo Lafferty is an SMA father and he's the director of Kushtina. I met him in Cork, just off Pope's Quay, where the drop-in centre is based. We set up Kushtina 10 years ago um, in response to the emerging needs that we were identifying with uh, immigrants who were coming into the country. There were other organisations uh, here in Cork who were dealing with uh, legal, housing, educational. What we were also experiencing was the need that was emerging for people to have people to sit down and listen to them, to listen to their story. Um, They were finding it difficult to trust people, uh, who to trust, uh, etc. So uh, having explored them, what their needs were, we decided then perhaps there was a need for another centre where people could come along, just drop in, say hello, sit down. And uh, I suppose if we put it in terms of uh, we set up Kushtina to professionally waste time with people. So in wasting that time, obviously, it was not wasted. Uh, our agenda was giving people an opportunity to, um, to build a relationship. Now, that relationship could take anything from one minute to 10, 15 years before they felt safe enough to, to trust us. So, that, so the drop-in centre became very important no fixed appointments coming in, coming out, coming in, coming out. For many of those that we were meeting, and we target primarily Africans. Uh, I'm African missionary, and it's a, it's a project of the Society of African Missions. Um, we felt that many of those people who come to our country, it was as a result of broken trust in the first place that got them here, for whatever reason, um, that brought them to Ireland as asylum seekers. So trust was important. As Yasser Yunus explains, when you're alone and far away from a war-torn home, somewhere like Kushtina can provide vital support. Because I can't go back home, I'm still not safe there. And uh, here you need to find a foundation and everything about qualification, you know, education and involving, integrating. And the key for that is the language. And in Kushtina here, they're kind of like supporting us. Here, I met, I met, I met friends, and, and uh, as I said, to integrate to the, to the community. And Kushtina is a is a one family that I have here, and the rest of my community. And uh, but actually, from my family, that I don't have nobody here. Most of the people that I met them here, and they're family for me. But all my family are back home. 
Last year, 8,000 people came through the door of Kushtina. When you come through our door, uh, we generally will ask you what your name is and your country of origin. We ask you very little else. Uh, we allow you then to take the lead. It's, it's the service users lead uh, how we will relate to them. And so if someone comes through our door and t tells us that their father has just gone uh, to the moon and they're feeling lonely, then that's our beginning point. And that's where, what they need us to hear and where they need us to be for them, and we'll respond to that. And then over a period of time, uh, we hope then that their, their real story comes out, because story is very, very important for people. All of us have a story. Uh, it forms our identity, our background, our family, our work, uh, what got us here in the first place. And then people are coming here, and they're coming through our door. They're presenting a story, but they have to have a story that is honoured with dignity, uh, respect, and they're also in our country creating a new story for themselves. So as they come through the door, we, uh, our objective is to give them hope. Hope to build a new story for themselves, a, a new future for both themselves, for those who they may have left behind, and for those, please God, who will come in the future. We not, we not, we not choose to leave. We forced to be live for safety and security. That's why we left. And, and, and it, it's hard to say that, you know, because when you leave your home, you leave everything behind you. You know, you start from the scratch and you can't go back either. So that's really difficult. And that's something, you know, I don't know how to explain it either in the world. So I just, we just being forced to, to move from there. And we don't like to do that, but we find ourselves here and our destiny brought us here. So, yeah. It must be very scary to leave everything you know behind and know you can't go back. Yeah, that's, that's the difficult thing, and that's the hardest thing, like, you know, because the time when we left, like, you know, you didn't have the chance to say goodbye, you didn't have the chance to, to meet everybody that you care of, and, and when you leave as well, you don't have any contact, you can't even communicate, you can't even talk to them, and, 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 and the hardest thing is, like, if there's something bad happening to them, so you're going to blame yourself that you're not there for them, you're not protecting them, and you're not doing anything about that. I think there's misconception out there that there a lot of these people come to the country uh, and are scroungers. Not at all at all. The people that I meet are very real human people. I hate putting labels on them, asylum seekers, refugees or whatever. They're people first of all. They're people who come with fears, hopes, expectations. They're like every other person that I know that I've met and I've travelled a little bit throughout the world. Uh, we're all the same. The colour might be different. The culture, the, the formation the uh, might be different from ours. And um, but th th there's a sense of most people that I meet, you know, they want to better themselves once they have the safety of the environment, once they have the security. Like many of the people I met at Kushtina, Yasser believes that qualifications and education will be the basis of a successful future for him. He's been granted asylum and is now an Irish citizen, which means he can begin to study and train for his future. I went to couple of uh, colleges here and to, to improve my skills and my language and and I was really getting qualification here. I was studying College of Commerce, Business Administration and English and uh, I studied Maths for Engineering for one year. Now I'm already in CIT, I'm studying Electronic Engineering for the first year. So yeah, I'm looking forward because as a, uh, in my country I was having my own business and all of that is gone.
and I, and and I need to find myself a base here to start from. So as I said to you before, the qualification and education is the key to get yourself work or or getting to some place. Again, a lot of what we try to do is to enable people and prepare. we journey with them in their story as they create a new story. Uh, many of those who come in are asylum seekers. Um, they're in direct provision. They're on 19 euro 10 per week. Expl explain that to me in indirect provision and 1910. Okay, so someone comes into the country and they say, "Look, I am in need of help. I'm medical care." I, I, I'm, so they make a claim as an asylum seeker. They immediately then are processed then. So uh, they need a place to stay, obviously. So there are uh, direct provision centre centres right throughout the country and it, immigration then sends them to these different places where they live. They're given, uh, they're given a, a bed to sleep in, they're given three meals per day, 19 euro 10 per week. Um, and then it's a waiting game. For us and our experience, and this is part of our difficulty in it, our system says here in Ireland uh, that, um, look, you come into our country and within six months we'll, have, uh, we'll help you to process your papers and we'll see if you're declared refugee or not or entitled to a status, leave to remain, whatever it might be, within six months. Unfortunately, that is not the case. We're meeting with people who... Um, have been here one, two, three, five, six, seven, nine, twelve years, still living in that situation. They're not entitled to for education. They're not entitled to work. So, and as a result of that, a lot of mental health issues uh, arise. Um, there's trauma. There's re-traumatization. So part of our role here, and one of the services we provide, is going out into the centres and meeting with people and being with them and offering them that hope again but then as a backup here in the centre then we provide counselling, psychotherapy and then small short courses um, that will give them skills that is permitted within the law that gives them a sense of achievement, something to work towards and also a sense of dignity that they're giving to themselves. We talk about uh, integration, we talk about the other uh, integration, we t but very often people talk uh, define integration uh, as the other adopting our ways. It's a two-way process. It's a give and take. If I come from another culture, I take with me who I am. I bring that with me. And that is not necessarily bad or good. It's who I am. We as Irish people, we have taken our culture, our beliefs and values to other countries and others have taken some of them on board. So as long as the communication is open, and the respect and the non-judgment, I think we can uh, build a much more inclusive uh, society, just as the Irish many years ago uh, went to the States, and it was the foundation of oh, the way the US is today. And of course they met some huge discrimination just on the basis of being Irish. No Irish, no dogs welcome. That report was from Leanne O'Donnell and to help you find out more about the work being done in Cork we'll put the website for Cushchina www.cushchina.ie on our own website. You may recall that during that report Father Angelo mentioned that the cash allowance for an asylum seeker is €19.10. That's also the retail price of a book published by Cushchina called Open Secrets, an Irish perspective on trafficking and witchcraft written by Dr. 
Dr Jennifer Dewan and David Lohan and we'll be talking to them next week. But that's it for now. Your comments are of course always welcome. You can email us at godslot at rte.ie phone us at 01208 or write to the Godslot RTE Radio 1 Dublin 4. Entrepreneur, publisher and RTE dragon Nora Casey is Gay Burns' guest this Sunday on The Meaning of Life on RTE 1 television. We'll be back next Friday at the same time and good evening. Because I gotta have faith. Oh, I gotta have faith.